Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, December 14th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The FTC has biotech in its crosshairs again, moving to block what looked like a humdrum deal between Sanofi and Maze Therapeutics. We'll discuss the SWIFT fallout and the many unanswered questions. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including Pfizer's downbeat future, Vertex Pharmaceuticals' next big thing, and a newly minted biotech VC with a very famous name. All that afterward from our sponsor. Tori Bosch, editor of Stats First Opinion column and host of the First Opinion podcast. And I'm Jesse McQuarters, editor of Stat Brand Studio. We're excited that Stat is launching a brand new community only for our subscribers called Stat Plus Connect. It's an online home for discussion, news, job postings, workshops, and more, all centered around the life sciences and biomedical research. It's also a chance to peek behind the curtain at Stat and interact with our writers and staff. You're the people that really bring our great journalism and content to you every day. And in fact, I made a course on how to crack first opinion. I lay out the kinds of essays I'm looking for, my editorial process, some writing tips, and much more. And I actually made one about Stat Brand Studio, sharing a little bit about what the heck a brand studio is in the first place, but also some of the things we do to bring the content of our marketing partners to life. You know, it sounds like I'm going to have to hop on to take your course. And Tori, yours sounds amazing. So I'm going to definitely check out yours at connect.statnews.com. Well, fantastic. I'll see you on Stat Plus Connect. So the Federal Trade Commission is somewhat famously under new leadership and seems to be adopting a newer, I don't know if ideology is the right word, but a a different take on regulating antitrust and, and policing mega mergers and mergers of any kind in the United States under the Biden administration. Now, specifically for the drug industry, that has meant some challenges we've seen to large transactions that would bring two really big drug makers together, I think most notably Amgen and its effort to acquire Horizon Pharmaceuticals. That took a twist, however, this week, with the news that the FTC was challenging a deal that Sanofi had struck with a small, privately held biotech company to license a single drug that was, I think, phase two ready, is how they described it. So a pretty early stage transaction. The FTC stepped in on that, said that it was monopolistic activity, that it had reason to believe that Sanofi was licensing this drug in order to slow it down or even kill it in order to maintain its monopoly. So we got that news via press release on Monday, or rather through FTC announcement on Monday. And then we got the news, I think within the hour, um, from a Sanofi press release that the company was just going to walk away from the deal, that it felt like challenging this legally would take time and resources that just weren't worth spending. Um, And I think they mentioned patience in there somewhere as being uh, the main cause for this decision. And then we found out, uh, I think the next day, that Maze Therapeutics, the privately held company in question, they learned that Sanofi was walking away from the deal from that same press release. So Adam, well, I guess maybe where, where's the right place to start here? You spoke to the CEO of Maze Therapeutics for a kind of <laughs> boots on the ground take of what it's like when your partner aborts a deal. What, what did we learn about how this played out? 
Yeah, Damien, I think what we learned is that uh, Sanofi doesn't have a, you know, doesn't really have the stomach to fight the FTC in court. Uh, you know, the agency had filed a complaint. It looked like they wanted to uh, to go to war on this and, and seek to block this what, you know, seemed like a relatively tame licensing deal, sort of your standard uh, issue licensing deal. Uh, and Sanofi just, you know, instead of fighting the FTC, as we've seen some other drug makers do, uh, when the FTC comes a knocking, uh, they decided to just to terminate the deal. And and like you mentioned, I I did get to speak to uh, I did get to speak to Mays's uh, CEO uh, Jason Coloma, and yeah, he he told me that you know he, he I think he said told me he spent Sunday at the uh, San Francisco 49ers game. They beat the uh, the Seahawks, and then uh, the next morning he's feeling pretty good until he learned. Uh, from Sanofi's press release that his partnership with the French farmer giant had come to an end. Um, not exactly the way he had envisioned this happening. I, you know, when I talked to him, you know, obviously they knew that the FTC was sniffing around about the about this partnership, which had been struck back in May. Um, they didn't know that this was all going to come down on Monday, which it did. And like and like you said, they didn't know. Uh, that Sanofi wanted to terminate the deal. So now they're kind of unraveling, uh, trying to unravel this partnership. Uh, you know, he told me that, uh, you know, obviously he was disappointed in, in but obviously disappointed in, in the FTC and also disappointed that Sanofi chose to just sort of walk away instead of fighting. I find myself kind of in response to, I mean, all of the the discourse online from the biotech industry, which is just, I mean shock surprise kind of like a oh snap what does this mean for 2024 uh response i'm i find myself i don't know if either of you have trying to do the math of this like try to think through like what the ftc's logic is you know the sanofi does have obviously a fair monopoly on Pompe disease treatments, the maize product that this partnership revolved around was was around an oral medication for Pompe disease. Uh, Sanofi sells some IV infusion products, the most recent of which like is probably on patent until like what the early mid 2030s. You know, I <laughs> I feel like that meme sometimes in in the last couple of days as I'm trying to do this math of the woman with the with the numbers <laughs> circling around her head, and I keep on coming back to the I think central question, which is that it seems like the FTC did this, assuming that Sanofi is going to kill the maze product or just like bury it, and I find myself wondering and and failing to come up with any answers of whether we've actually seen that happen before in the biotech industry. Well, Damien, we should probably mention the um, <laughs> the heavily redacted complaint that the FTC yeah. filed on this. You and I you and I both took a look at that. Yeah, well, that's what was fascinating is, Allison, as you mentioned, the sort of reaction in biotech was this is arguably catastrophic for the industry because partnerships like this, big company give money to small company to co-develop an asset. These are very much bread and butter of how small companies not only stay in business, but you know eventually make medicines. There's a long history of drugs being invented at small biotech companies that end up getting partnered with larger pharma companies and go on to make meaningful differences in the lives of patients. So there's an understandable. In this market, that's basically biotech's only lifeline because if yeah. money is not really freely flowing anywhere else. Sure, that's a great point. And so 
There's an understandable reaction of the FTC wading into the nitty gritty of these quotidian biotech deals is very bad for the industry. And then, you know, a lot of people went further to say it's misguided and it's a uh, an overextension of the FTC's remit to police monopolies by, you know, getting in the weeds this way. I think that's fair based on the headline facts. But then, Adam, as you mentioned, the FTC, I don't know if published is the right word, um, put out its... Uh, uh, it's complaint against Sanofi, and within it, in the heavily redacted sort of you know CIA chapters that we were able to glance here, there is the suggestion that in its review of the deal and in its review of internal documents from both Sanofi and Mays, that the FTC came to the conclusion that it was reasonable that Sanofi was going to, as we said, kill or even slow walk this program. Um, we don't. I, like we can't assess that evidence firsthand because it is just covered in black bars in this PDF. But the fact that it apparently exists and was compelling enough to the FTC, I think it's, you know, we can give them the benefit of the doubt that there's a there there. And the immediate decision on Sanofi's part to walk away from this also kind of suggests that maybe there's a bit of a there there. Now we don't know and we may never know. And frankly, like I don't have an opinion on this, but I was a little disappointed that Santa Fe didn't want to contest it because if they had, we would have gotten more of this information, which I actually think would have been good for biotech so that they could see you know, what the evidentiary standard is moving forward as deals like this will continue to be struck. But I think it's worth noting that like we've seen just in the past year, if not monopolistic, but dominant companies striking deals either to acquire outright or to license therapies that might compete with their hegemonic drugs and not get FTC scrutiny. Like just in, I mean, we have to talk about GLP-1 and obesity. I think that's a legal statute that governs this podcast. But, you know, both Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk have acquired companies that make products that in the long term could conceivably unseat uh, respectively Wegovy and ZepBound. And those have gone at least to date without FTC challenge. So it seems reasonable that there might be details about this transaction that we don't know that mean this is not the sort of sky is falling precedent that a lot of people in biotech seem to think that it is. Yeah. And when I talked to Mays' CEO, Jason Coloma, about this, you know, I was really interested to learn kind of what his reaction to the FTC's complaint, right? I mean, obviously, he's reading this. And um and uh, he was he was sort of diplomatic about it. I mean, what he said to me was that you know all of the interactions that that Mays has had with Sanofi over this over this drug and their deal have been very positive. That Sanofi had told them about how committed they were to patients and about how committed they were to moving this drug forward in clinical trials. And so you know he's sort of taking Sanofi at its word. But, you know, he also said to me, you know, he said, look, it seems like the FTC may have found something. You know, they had no inkling of this. They have no evidence. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Mays here. They they had no evidence. They, they had no inkling that that maybe possibly Sanofi had an ulterior motive here. Um, but, you know, I, I think he was sort of it seemed like he was as surprised as, as all of us when we read this heavily redacted report, which, which like, as you said, Damien, sort of suggests that there's something there, although we don't know what that is. I really just want to put out a shout out right now. If anybody wants to leak the unredacted <laughs> version of this report. <laughs> it's Lena will... Khan if you listen to this podcast. And when you say redacted, it's like it's like it's like a CIA top secret document. I mean it's they're like it's huge common. sections that are just blacked out. <laughs> the email is uh read out loud at statnews.com. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh Pfizer yesterday. Well, well there's been a 
some a, a good amount of Pfizer news this week. Uh, first, obviously, they closed the big transaction. We speaking about big mergers. They they closed the deal with Seijin. Um, but at the same time, uh, they offered 2024 financial guidance, which I guess it's fair to say uh, left a lot to be desired from a Wall Street perspective, Damien. That's right. So Pfizer forecasts revenue and profits for 2024 that were far below analyst expectations, especially on the profit side. One thing that made headlines is their projections for COVID-19, they sell obviously a vaccine and a treatment uh, for the virus, came in at just $8 billion for the entire year, um, which is a, a massive decline from uh, years prior, obviously the height of the pandemic, but even what previous expectations had been. Now, it felt like, and, and we watched analysts kind of jump through hoops trying to f- square these numbers, basically trying to get to how little profit Pfizer expected based upon all of the things that are known about the base business. And the sort of underlying implication was this was the kitchen sink call for Pfizer. This was them saying, we're, we're basically calling the bottom of our own business. They've had not a good year. Uh, they're down about 50% from the start of the year. They're down even more than that um, from their peak at the height of the pandemic. And it kind of felt like this was a company setting very, very meetable and surpassable, if that's a word, um, expectations for itself in 2024, kind of just to stop the bleeding of both the stock price and just the narrative around the company, just this kind of like drumbeat of disappointments that have been news out of Pfizer, fairly or otherwise, um, in the past six to frankly 12 months. And so I don't know, that that seemed to be the subtext of the thing, both from the analyst reactions and even from the statements of Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla, who it felt like the company was kind of laying its cards on the table alongside this very downcast revenue thing and resetting expectations for itself. Beating up on Pfizer has been kind of a uh, favorite parlor game of Wall Street this year. And uh, and <laughs> that's certainly... Uh, that certainly continued. I mean, if you if you overlay a chart of let's say Pfizer and Eli Lilly this year, uh, it's a pretty remarkable looking chart for 2023. Uh, and yeah, it's you know you can you can kind of just go. We think, we've talked about these things, right? I mean, you know, it's not only just sort of the financial stuff, and it's not just um, declining. COVID sales, but, you know, just, I think from the R&D and drug development side, I mean, I think there's just been a lot of setbacks at, at Pfizer. I mean, we, we've talked about, you know, their obesity, um, some some of the setbacks and disappointments in their obesity programs. You know, we've talked about, you know, the drug that they gave away to Royvan, which then Royvan turned into billions of dollars. And, you know, there've been things like that that have happened that I think people are starting to question, um, not just, you know, kind of the, the, the huge financial engine that is Pfizer, but you know where the growth is going to come from. Uh, you know, obviously they just like we said, we mentioned they they acquired Seijin, and and that should help them in the future. But I think people are just looking at this and and wondering, you know, what is going on over there. Well, and um, amazingly for this year, the year twenty twenty three, we can't attribute all of you know Pfizer. Pfizer stock hitting a rough point this week with an overall downturn in the XBI because for what the first time this year, Damien, you noted uh, the XBI is actually in the green. That's right. After a long, I mean, it's been a volatile year. There were, it feels like a hundred years ago, but the biotech had a brief recovery over the summer that a lot of people declared like, ah, we're back. And that of course was followed by a precipitous decline in the fall, but cutting to the present. Yes. uh, As of Wednesday, the XBI Biotech Index is up for 2023 after being down as much as or more than 20% um, as recently as October. 
And obviously, in a broad sense, that's good news for biotech investors who I think have had a very frustrating year for the most part. But it also is kind of a sobering reminder that biotech is, you know, despite how much brain power and how much work goes into specialists who really focus on this industry, it is party to, or I shouldn't say, I was gonna say pray to, but that's wrong. It's at the whim of macroeconomic things that have nothing to do with whether a given drug works or whether CRISPR genome editing fulfills its potential. Biotech's initial rise back in November was tied to inflation basically flattening in the CPI report. And so then, you know, so-called risky sectors, stocks like biotech went up. And then the, the rise this week was tied to a Federal Reserve meeting where uh, Jerome Powell came out and said, we're not going to raise rates again. In fact, we're looking toward cutting rates in the future, sometime in 2024, perhaps. Again, this has nothing to do <laughs> with the nuts and bolts of actual biotech stocks, but it was arguably the best thing that happened to the sector all year. And I mean, that just kind of is the way it is. I think when you talk to people who've been in this business for a long time, this is just an accepted frustration that you know biotech is, is a... a drop in the ocean of like the global capital markets. And this is just kind of how it is. Well, in a non-scientific data point, um, December feels like there's been a reinvigoration of, of sorts in, in biotech. I mean, at least on the startup side, I got to tell you, I was really looking forward to my December being, um, you know, finishing up some projects before the holidays and just like, you know, preparing my JPM calendar. And my inbox has been overflowing with like embargoed financing releases, you know, new fundraisings um, from VC firms, more so than I would normally anticipate for mid-December. So whatever, you know, uh, sense of hope I think is being felt on the XBI um, potentially is being translated to the startup world. It's kind of like it's it's kind of hard to tie those two things together. But I have just to say that the stage seems set for a very interesting January in JP Morgan because there's a lot happening in December. Well, speaking of good news for biotech, and in this case, it is tied to a given drug and whether it actually works, it would appear that Vertex Pharmaceuticals experimental treatment for pain is one of those drugs that actually works. We had seen phase two data in an acute pain setting, um, I guess now almost two years ago. Uh, that was positive, suggesting that Vertex's pain drug had a future. But there was arguably a milestone for this program this week in a chronic pain setting. Adam, what did we learn about that drug? Yeah, they uh, read out results from a phase two study uh, in uh, in people with diabetes who have uh, chronic nerve pain, where they showed uh, significant pain reduction with their drug. It's called VX548. Uh, it's a kind of an, a little bit of an unusual pain study in that there was no placebo uh, arm in the study. They did have a st uh, an arm in the study where patients um, got a, a, a common a common drug, a generic drug that's used um, to treat uh, chronic nerve pain and you know diabetic nerve pain, um, and it, you know, and it stacks up. You know, the vertex drug, the vertex drug stacks up well against that as well. So I, I think while this is a phase two study and, and they're going to have to run uh, larger phase three studies, this this definitely pointed in the direction that this is a new novel kind of pain drug. It's a non-opioid pain drug, so it doesn't have sort of the addictive qualities that opioids have, which is obviously very important. Um, and uh, I, I was. I thought the stock would react well. Um, 
the <laughs> the reaction was pretty uh, remarkable. Uh, the huge, huge jump in Vertex stock price on on Wednesday. Uh, the company is now worth more than a hundred billion dollars. They crossed the one hundred billion dollar market value uh, threshold on Wednesday, which you know is a, I guess a banner achievement for a biotech company. Uh, but yeah, this drug is really interesting because, and, and it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the, the, the projections for this kind of drug are hard to, they're hard to pin down because pain is, you know, a highly genericized market and you've got acute pain and you've got chronic pain. Um, but, you know, this could be a multi-billion dollar drug, um, you know, and obviously Vertex is known for its cystic fibrosis drugs, which bring in about $10 billion a year or will bring in about $10 billion a year at peak. So this is like another mega blockbuster drug that would sort of sit on top of all that. And that's got people really excited. Um, they are uh, running phase three studies right now in acute pain, uh, like, you know, people who have uh, bunionectomies or tummy tucks, and those data will be out early next year. So we'll have a, a, another look at this drug and how it performs in, in studies that are potentially pivotal um, that could be filed for approval. Um, you know, and it, again, it's, uh, you know, we, we, we even go back a little bit and kind of think historically, um, a lot of the work or the, the, the fundamental science work that was done on this drug called VX548 was done by uh, it was done out in Vertex's San Diego research facility. Um, it was actually originally done by a company called Aurora that 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 Vertex bought way back. Um, and uh, you know this is this is where the cystic fibrosis drugs came from, and now this pain drug. So like you know you kind of think about transformational um, acquisitions. You know we've talked a lot about acquisitions <laughs> today, <laughs> but if you really think about, it, I think they bought Aurora for like five hundred million dollars way back when. Um, what a steal. So it's, I mean, really, it's probably, I mean, you can actually probably, you know, if you think about it, it's a good point, Allison, but, you know, um, a deal like that, just what it's brought to Vertex is pretty remarkable. You know, I always think about uh, a deal way back when Gilead bought a little company called Triangle Pharmaceuticals, which kind of helped launch their uh, HIV business, you know, the sort of combination therapies in HIV, which, you know, obviously created, you know, help patients tremendously, um, but also brought billions and billions of dollars into Gilead too. It's it's like, a, it's, it's like that kind of transformational um, acquisition. And that doesn't really seem apparent at the time when they're done. But now when you sort of look back at what what's happened, it, it is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, the history of this program, in fact, I recommend uh, our colleague Jonathan Wozen wrote a story about, you know, the, the roots in Aurora and how this program came about, but it, it's also a fascinating idea for pain, both because of the need for non-opioid pain medicines and the dearth of new, like novel biological pain targets uh, that have emerged into like actual drugs over the last, frankly, 50 years. Um, but this one also has, like a lot of medicines, roots in human genetics, such that what this drug is doing in the body is basically seeking to, I don't want to say replicate, um, but is inspired by actual genetic mutations that exist for some people who simply feel no pain, which is actually a very dangerous genetic mutation to be born with because a little bit of pain keeps you safe from things like hot stoves or walking on a broken ankle. And then there is a gain of function version of that mutation, which leads to what is called man on fire syndrome, which is like tragically exactly what it sounds like. So there's there's a fascinating scientific backstory here. The future business story, I think, despite Vertex adding about $10 billion in market cap, as you mentioned, on these data is going to be really interesting because not only in January, we will find out 
whether this medicine proves itself in phase three in acute pain, which is obviously massively important. It will not win FDA approval without a success there. But moving forward, you know, as you mentioned, this is a drug that will compete in a very genericized market. Most of the treatments, including the, um, the treatment it was compared to in the study we were talking about, are generic pain drugs. And so for Vertex, this is a company that made its gazillions in cystic fibrosis, where it could charge a lot of money for a very powerful medicine that is indicated for a relatively small number of people. Cystic fibrosis is a fairly rare disease. Now we're moving into a situation where Vertex will have to decide how much to charge for a medicine that is ostensibly competing against drugs that are like functionally free, in, in especially in a hospital setting. And so the case that they'll have to make for its efficacy, its side effect profile, which appears to be better than some of these other medicines, and basically just the whole business that Vertex is going to embark upon, the whole next big thing, the future of the company as this medicine is being um at least viewed as by Wall Street, is going to require some evolution on their part. And it's going to be very interesting to see how Vertex meets the moment. So, Allison, speaking of projects in December that you wanted to get finished, uh, <laughs> you did that <laughs> with a, a great, a shameless stat plug. We want you to read Jonathan Wozen's uh, story about Vertex and their pain drug, but we also want you to read uh, Allison's just amazing profile of Reed Jobs, and jobs being, uh, yes, that jobs. Uh, Allison, tell us about Reed Jobs and his uh, his career now, I guess his sort of early career as a biotech venture capitalist. Of course. So yeah, some people might know that back in August, Reed Jobs, uh, the son of the late Steve Jobs, um, came out and said that he was launching his own um, investment firm focused on oncology. Um, you know, his father famously uh, died of complications from pancreatic cancer back in, I think, 2011, if I'm getting my math right. And, you know, Reed, on the back end, as I found out, has been hugely influenced by that that experience, um, really since his his preteen years. And now, you know, as a uh, man in his early 30s, is kind of fully dedicating his work career to um, making, as they hope, you know, cancer um, a non-lethal event um, within our lifetimes, which would be amazing. Um, so I had a kind of open question when this firm got announced of, well, who is Reed Jobs and what is he, what what does he know, what has his experience been in the biotech world? So that's what I kind of set out to learn and um, was actually able to talk to people who have worked with Reed. I was able to talk to Reed himself and a couple of colleagues at his new firm, Yosemite, and get the inside scoop on, you know, how Reed is approaching building a VC firm and investing money, and in some cases, giving money away in grant form to oncology projects. Well, that was kind of my fundamental curiosity as well when first I heard about this endeavor because, and I'm sure this is sort of like a vulgar minimization of it, but I sometimes think of venture capital, especially at the highest levels, as kind of like the smoke-filled back room. It's sort of like usual suspects, at least in terms of firms, if not the people there who get cut in on deals or who are informed of certain things. And you know, when we see a Series A round, it's kind of a litany of familiar names. And so being, so entering into that, I guess that, that was my curiosity is like, what is the Yosemite plan, the, the Reed Jobs plan for getting a toehold in this world that 
probably, I mean, there could always be more money spent on cancer research, but that seems kind of crowded, at least on the on the VC side. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Damien, that was, I mean, one of my key thoughts as well. I mean, oncology already makes up about a third of all of the financing that goes into to biotech startups. Oncology is a hugely, hugely popular area. And Reed and his team acknowledge biotech venture capital is is kind of in many ways like a closed cachet. Um, you know, it's heavily syndicated. You see on press releases, you know, a lot of firms that kind of work with each other again and again and, and have really close relationships. And Reed and his team, you know, going back eight years when Reed started first getting into the venture capital world and getting into investing in biotech and oncology, um, realized that that was a real need, that you kind of need to break in to that group, you know, find a way to get into the back rooms. And so, um, yeah, back when in, I think about, you know, 2015, he decided that, you know, he was, he had kind of a change of heart. He had gone through some, you know, kind of processing after his father's death, um, had been interested in in working in medicine, had moved away from it, and then back in 2015, rededicated himself to working in healthcare and in oncology. And yeah, set out while working at a firm founded by his mother, Emerson Collective, um, set out to kind of infiltrate the the biotech VC world. And so what I found out is you know, a lot of stories of him tapping into people who are kind of in the know. Um, you know, at one point, Tyler Jacks uh, showed him around Cambridge and Kendall Square. You know, he's he's meeting people from other VC firms and they're bringing them into deals. And actually, you know, as, as far back as, as 2016, he is investing in biotech. Emerson Collective was actually an early investor in Grail. As I learned, and he, you know, they they got in on some pretty big deals, and then as time has gone on, they've said it's almost as if they said, "Okay, we've kind of achieved this this task of beginning to infiltrate ourselves in biotech VC. Now let's like really double down." And they have spun out the health team at Emerson Collective into this new firm Yosemite, and have gone more independent, brought in more outside investors, and you know have essentially, as I said, doubled down on what they're doing. So Allison, based on your reporting, you know, your you you know, your time spent talking to Reed Jobs and, and other people who know him, how much is the is the family name, how much was that was that a, a benefit to him and or was it a hindrance to him? I think I think there are pros and cons. I, and people that I spoke to you know, fully acknowledge uh, when, you know, they began interacting with Reed or, you know, they've they've met him. Look, the Jobs family name is kind of the first thing that almost like walks through the door where you kind of recognize like, oh, Steve Jobs. OK, like this is, you know, here's the the backstory, kind of the legacy. And in some ways that that must inevitably help open those doors. Um, but Reed himself is rather private about his family, you know, and he really wants to build a reputation for himself beyond that. And so I think that's in part why, you know, he has chosen to bring out, you know, his team independent. He had also said that it's it's just a, a personal mission and kind of a, a, a family almost uh, 
legacy of kind of starting your own firm. You know, that's something that's very, uh, you know, felt in the jobs family of going independent and, and starting your own venture and kind of controlling your own destiny. Um, so I think there are pros and cons. You also have to imagine that kind of the legacy of a a Steve Jobs, that shadow it, it can be, you know, it can be cold in that shadow, I would imagine. Um, and that's, I think, something that is, uh, you know, kind of continual point of consideration in Reed's life. And you also noted, I think, uh, he's, he's a pretty private guy. Like, he, mm-hmm. he's hard to, hard to get to know during the reporting yeah. process. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to talk to Reed, you know, and, and he is very passionate about the oncology space, but yeah, he, you know, is, is very private. And I think that that goes back to when you have somebody in your family whom, you know, books have been written about and, and movies have been done about, uh, that really influences your perspective on how you uh, approach your own life in the future. Allison's not giving herself enough credit because uh, we know from the inside that she had pursued this story for a really long time back and forth and and Reed and his people you know, sort of politely declined to to uh, cooperate for a long time. And Allison persisted and f- finally got that interview. So that was pretty cool. Thank you. It, I mean, I'm really pleased with how, how it all came together. And uh, yeah, looking, I, everybody that I've spoken to pretty much has said that they actually, they really like Reed and they really like think that what he's building could be successful. And although he's, you know, he's not a scientist by background, that he, you know, he's a smart guy. He's an intuitive guy um, and clearly very dedicated. So people in the venture world seem very positive about him. So we'll see where it goes from there. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who should be the subject of Allison's next profile. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.